So the question I want to begin with this morning, as I often do, because I want you to think, I want you to turn your brains on and not turn them off. You know, I feel like so much of our week is trying to get through our day, our jobs, get in front of the TV so we can turn our brains off. So if you have your brain on for one hour a week, let it be this hour. Uh, So the question I want to ask you is, have you ever gotten confused reading scripture? I just said confused and Ian had his hand up. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Have you ever been frustrated that scripture is not clear? Is it just me? Thank you for the other hands and the other other admonitions. So if you're not reading scripture at all, that's an entirely different conversation. Please see me afterward. But if you do read scripture and it it becomes difficult and it can be, be frustrating, you're not alone. I often feel like, like Jacob. Remember when Jacob wrestles with the Lord? And he's like, I will not let go of you until you bless me. Sometimes those difficult passages, they take meditation. They take wrestling with them and holding on to them. God, I am not going to give up on this passage. I'm going to seek your word. I'm going to desire to know you so much, I will not let go until it blesses me. I think that's a, that's a beautiful exercise in the Christian life. Because I know so many people is like, yeah, I read the Bible once. Or even Christians. Well, I, I don't really get to it that often. But when the light bulb begins to go off, when you wrestle with that passage and you work through difficult things, and the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and it begins to make sense, it's amazing. We have the revelation of God who speaks to us and we're amazed at the wisdom of God's Word and how it searches us and digs into every part of our life. Even when our minds and our understanding fails us, we can celebrate that we have the mind of Christ. But for most of us, for all of us, it hasn't always been that way. I mean, I grew up in the church, as many of you have. I, I read the Bible. I knew the words. I knew what these words mean. I know what they mean in this order. But they were, they were confusing. It was, like, it was like looking at a puzzle when it first comes out of the box. You know, anyone just, they dump out all the, uh, the uh, pieces, and you're like, yeah, that's a piece of a building, that's a piece of a cat, but I don't know how all these things fit together. I feel like that was reading the Bible before, pre-Christ. Before the Lord opens my eyes, I'm like, what does all this stuff have to do with each other? But then the Lord opens your eyes, and you begin to read, and you put the pieces together with the same colors, and the picture begins to come together. And as you read more and more, this beautiful puzzle that was once a mystery to you is now open. Anyone, have, anyone been there? And for the rest of our lives, we begin to put this beautiful tapestry together that the Lord has woven. And there's a beautiful reality that God the Father gives eyes to see to His children so that we may know His Word, that we may know Him, that we may grow in intimacy with Him. And it's a beautiful blessing of being the body of Christ. But as we're going to see this morning, that is not granted to everyone. This is not a given. And I think many of us assume, or many people assume, that, well, The Bible is accessible to everyone and is read the same by everyone. So we're going to see what Jesus has to say about that this morning. But what we will see is that everything Jesus does is intentional. Not just the words that he uses, but how he uses those words and how he presents them. Jesus is intentional when he proclaims. He's intentional when he teaches. He's intentional when he speaks in parables. He's intentional when he chastises. And every word is used for 
the building up of his people. And so hopefully you'll see that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 4. We are going to spend two weeks on the parable of the sower because it deserves it. Uh, I was tempted to spend four, but we're going to stick with two. Beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 13. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him. So that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And the other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? Lord, we come before you this morning humbled, even in the simplicity of your word. It is convicting and it is challenging and it stretches us. Lord, forgive us when we take for granted that without ears to hear, this makes no sense. Without opening our eyes, we can't see you and your word for what it is. So, Lord, I pray for wisdom this morning, that we may rightly discern and understand your word. Pray for your spirit to open our eyes and direct our thoughts and actions according to your word, that you may be glorified in everything you do, that we may be faithful to our Father, Jesus the Son on earth was faithful to the Father. And there, there prove to be His children. Oh Lord, I just pray that You bless everything we say and do here this morning. Uh, and be with me in my words. May they be Yours and not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're picking up in chapter 4, of course. Uh, Matthew tells us, Luke, or Mark doesn't include the detail, that it was the same day. So we're building off of the themes in chapter 3. So the last few sermons we saw in chapter 3 that after Jesus is attracting crowds and they're following him home, his family thinks he's crazy, the scribes think he's possessed by demons, and his, his family from a distance standing on the outside is calling Jesus to them, but there are others, the disciples and those who, who followed him who sit at Jesus' feet, and he makes the distinction between those on the outside and those on the inside. And so the crowd, of course, finds him again. And here we find Jesus by the, the shores of the Galilee. That he's got this, this crowd. And it's not 
It's always a crowd, but now it's a very large crowd. And so let's look at some of the details in here, because the way this is written is very graphic. And graphic in the way that Mark wants to draw you in. Look at all of the, the movement and the energy that's going on here. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So that he got into a boat and he sat in it on the sea. In other places, we, we see that he goes to a boat so that the people won't crush him. There are so many people, they are pushing him into the water. So he gets in a boat and goes offshore a little bit. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. So you got Jesus in the water in the boat and all these people on the land. So it doesn't really uh, ring true to us because... I don't know how many of you have ever been to the Sea of Galilee. I have not. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever heard a sermon preached from the water while you're on land. Uh, just side note, we were actually throwing this around when, when COVID came. If we weren't going to be able to meet inside, we were talking about uh, bringing a boat, boat up to Lake Monroe and then everyone could sit on, on the side. I still think we should do that sometime, but um, it'd, it'd be pretty cool. But if you, if you have not been there, if you have not seen it, uh, it it's, it's hard to imagine. So I'm going to use a lot of visual aids to do today. I don't always do that, but I think it'll be helpful. So there's a few pictures up on the screen. There's, and I don't know if this is the exact location, but it sounds really good. This is called the, uh, the, the, the Cove of the Sower or the, the, the Bay of Parables. So this is actually a natural occurrence on the Sea of Galilee. And if this was the spot, it would be perfect because it's a natural amphitheater that, that slopes down. So you get Jesus on the boat, the, the reverberations coming off of the water, and this, this hill sloping up, and you could fit a very large crowd. The next picture is a, a helicopter view. You kind of see that, that same cove down there. You can, you can kind of see this begin to, to unfold. If that's the spot, it's really cool. Um, and then the, the next picture is, is kind of helpful of how this would happen. So this is also in the Sea of Galilee. You'll see these, these natural sloping um, hills that would come down to the sea. And so Jesus could stand at the bottom, and they would, in succession, sit higher and higher up. And so the large crowd would come, and it would gather, and they would sit at his feet. But as more and more people come, there begins to be less and less room for Jesus. So there are many of these places along the Sea of Galilee. I don't know that that, that was the one, um, but again, it sounds really good. And so that's kind of the setting. That's what's, that's what's going on here. The places beside the Sea of Galilee with people crowding him, and he begins to teach them many things. And in those many things are parables. Now, there are some 60 or so parables and illustrations used by Jesus in the Gospels, comparing one thing to another, using something that's, that, that's common for understanding. And so Mark only includes the ones in chapter 4, but Luke and Matthew include a lot more. John doesn't include any, but John tells us that if everything Jesus was done, everything Jesus did was written down, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. So we're getting a glimpse into one day in the ministry of Jesus. Imagine what it was like to walk with him every day, parable after kingdom insight after kingdom insight. And so, again, Mark just records a couple of them, and we're going to look at them over the next few weeks. And so, what exactly is a parable and why? Why use parable? So one ans- ask or answer, what is a parable? This word is fascinating. So the word parable actually comes from the same word as the root word ruler. Follow me here. So you, you lay a ruler down next to something, like you lay a ruler down next to your foot to say that your foot is 12 inches. A parable is a type of story laid next to something else to give clarification to it, to measure what it actually represents. 
So a parable is a, a measuring and interpretive tool. It is using something that is compared to something else. And so uh, parables are used often by Jesus because it helps to measure and explain what he's teaching. And so a parable is more than a metaphor. So it's not just comparing one thing to another. There's, there's, there's more to it, but it's less than an allegory, meaning that every word, every piece does not have to have an exact correlation. Everybody with me? And those of you who didn't do well in English in high school, don't worry. Um, that's, what, that's what a parable is. And so a parable is essentially Jesus telling earthly stories which teach us heavenly truths. And so it's just an earthly story using common forms to teach us heavenly truths. And the way that Jesus taught was unlike anything anyone had ever heard. I mean, in fact, when the Pharisees in, uh, was it John 7, they send out their officers to go capture him. They couldn't even take hold of him because they were like, no one ever spoke like this man. They were too amazed by the way that he spoke to take him into custody. Jesus spoke with authority. Jesus spoke with power and conviction. And he taught with truth and insight. And using parables is, is his grasp of language to weave it and shape it for his purpose. And we're going to see why parables in just a moment. So before we do that, I want to go over this parable. And so gonna, let me tell you what we're going to do. So this morning, I want to go over this parable on face value. And then next week, we're going to get into its, its meaning and application. But again, this is another instance where when we read this parable, we know what these words mean, but most of us have never walked along a field in Israel and sowed seed. I don't think any of you have. If you have, give me some details for next week. But if you don't know what it's like around the Sea of Galilee, I think getting the, the visuals is, is, healthy, is uh, helpful. And I'm going to get there in just a moment. So let's look at the beginning of this parable. Listen. Essentially, pay attention. Hear what I have to hear. Everybody, eyes on me, look up here. Listen. Behold. Gather round. This is kind of like once upon a time language. He actually begins with alliteration to get their attention. A sower went out sowing. Whenever you say once upon a time, whenever you say let me tell you a story, everybody immediately picks their, their, their heads up. They immediately begin engaging because we like, we like stories. And this is not just an ordinary story. It's, it's a parable, but that's the, the sense of what's, of what's going on here. And he's using something that's very familiar to every one of them. Anyone who had walked around the Sea of Galilee, even if they weren't a farmer themselves, even if they had never sown seed, they had seen someone do it, and their food came from those very seeds. So I just want to bring out a couple uh, details. But I want to show you some, some images to kind of help you get a grasp of this. Because the picture um, of the, the, the agriculture and the train in Galilee, it's, it's different than what we would know. Because let me show you the, the, the first image here. So this is close to the Sea of Galilee. So you've got grazing land, you've got rocks, and you've got mountains very close to one another. This is very unforgiving land. It's not all just fertile valleys. And they can change very quickly. Look at the next one. So this is a picture from a hill on the Sea of Galilee. You look at one side, you've got rocks and hills and grass in the foreground here. But on the other side, it's desert and dust and it's, and it's barren. Look at the next one. So here you kind of get a, um, this is uh, farming land, 
And so they have to be intentional with where they put their, their crops. So you see the, the green there, that did not come up by accident. That is a farmer very carefully working the land and making sure that something can grow there, but all around it is dirt and dust. So when you think of a, of a, a sower sowing seed, three-quarters of the ground is not going to produce fruit, but yet the seed goes all over. Then the last one I think is, is really helpful because in the same one, in the same picture here, Next picture. Oh, I had one more after this. That one's really pretty too. Next picture. There you go. Um, so in the same picture, you see the thorns, you see the flowers growing up, and you see the rocks, and I'm sure there's a path in there somewhere. But very quickly, from one to the next, the, the, the topography can change. And so all of the details in this, this parable would ring true to the audience, but there's also great gospel parallels in each one of these, which we'll get to next week. So um, no spoiler alerts. We will get there next week. But a couple things I want you to bring up that maybe we wouldn't understand. First of all, um, all right, I'm done with the pictures for now. Thanks, Trey. So the first thing we wouldn't understand is that seeds were not an um, abundant commodity. It's not like you could go up to the store and just get a, bun- get a bunch of seeds. They were very valuable because that, the, your family eating depended on those seeds. And so this sower throwing seeds everywhere, no sower in his right mind would let any seeds fall on the path. This shows the wealth of the sower. He's got an abundance of seeds. He's not really worried about where they, where they land. This is the first thing to ring true because when this audience hears it, it's like no one wastes seeds like that. Because if you don't have enough production out of your seeds, you don't make money, you don't, you, you don't barter, your family doesn't eat. So that's the first thing we need, to, we need to see. And then the other details in here, we've got four types of soil. We've got the ones along the path. That's where everyone walks and their, their feet trample on it. Nothing's growing there. Then you've got the rocky ground. So this happens often. Um, Florida, it's not as bad as, as some other places. We, you, you dig in Florida, you find sand. But if you're from the north, if you dig, you find rocks everywhere. This is worse in the Middle East because rocks are everywhere. So dust and dirt may fly in. You might have an inch or two of, of dust or dirt on top of rocks, but there are plenty of, of rocky ground. And so the, the seed will it'll, it'll shoot up because the roots, are, the roots are growing out quickly, but there's, there's, there's no depth. Luke tells us there's a lack of moisture. They don't, they don't have any water. There's, there's nothing stable for them, so they, so, so they die quickly. Again, all of this is resonating with, with the people. And then you've got the good soil. So essentially, three-quarters of the ground is not fit for bearing fruit. And then you've got the, uh, oh, I forgot the, uh, the uh, thorns. So the thorns are interesting because if you're a gardener, the number one rule of gardening is everything you don't want to grow is going to grow the fastest. Right? It is those, those things that you do not want in your garden, they're going to shoot right up. And these, these thorny briars, they, they, they will shoot up. They've got long tentacles. They'll wrap themselves around other plants. Not only will they literally choke them above the ground, but they will starve them underneath the ground because their roots will steal all of the nutrients for the, the, the competing plants. So again, this is bringing true to all of them. But then the last one is something different. The last one describes the maturation process. Look at the three verbs here. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Look at the, the verbs. Growing up, 
increasing and yielding. This describes the maturation process of plants. They come out of the ground, they, they, they grow up, they increase, they get bigger, and hopefully they will, they will yield. So again, great gospel parallel. We'll definitely dig in here next week. But when the farmer hears this, he knows absolutely. That's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for that first bud to come out of the ground. I'm waiting for it to grow up. And I'm waiting for the, the time when I can come in and harvest. And then when he harvests, he brings in, hopefully, some kind of multiple of what he's sown. So the word fold is, is essentially seeds sown to seeds harvested. And the other thing we don't get when we read this, since we're not in agriculture in this time, is that if you were planting seeds, if you were working in the field in this time, your average yield would be 10 to 20-fold. So when Jesus says 30-fold, like, okay, now you've got my attention. 60-fold, wait, one little seed is going to give me 60 more grains? Or 100-fold? This is a big deal. Because any farmer who gets this kind of return, he's throwing a party. Because if he gets this kind of return, it doesn't matter where all the rest of the seeds go. If he's getting this kind of return, he's, he's, he's celebrating. So this is what Jesus is getting at. So hopefully this is, this is helpful. So this is a familiar analogy to these people. But it's also very radical. Because from the details of the seeds and the ground and the yield that will come up, so okay, this sounds familiar, but this sounds too good to be true. And so... Jesus is getting their attention with the inflammatory nature of some of the details that he's, that he's using. And then he finishes with the famous saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the details are easy enough to follow. Of course, I understand the words. But what is he getting at here? Why? Why tell us this story? And you notice... We'll get there in just a second, but you notice that Jesus begins and ends with the same concept. Begins with listen, or your ears. And he ends with those who have ears to hear. Now the way that he speaks about ears here is very particular. He doesn't say, if you listen, then you will have ears to hear. He says, if you have ears to hear. Those who has, or excuse me, he who has ears to hear. That means this is possessive. Someone who actually possesses ears to hear. It does not say a willingness to hear, but one who has ears. This will come into play. Because this is not something that you develop, that you can work toward. It's something you must have. And then the one who has it, he's commanded. Let him hear. If you have these ears, let him hear. So here's where we end on this section. If he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And sorry, dads, I know we're using farming language and all that, but there are no corn jokes here. Josh already tried yesterday. It's not going to happen. Ears to hear dad jokes, anybody? Okay. Um, Josh and I thought it was funny yesterday. All right, so um, continues. <laughs> yeah, they don't have ears to hear. Thank you, Shri. Um So verse 10, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you. And so verse 10, and when he was alone... All right, so here's what happens in front of all the people. He withdraws as he often does. When you see the word alone here, it's obviously not him by himself because it's him with the 12 and the other people. But Jesus' most insightful teaching, where he opens up the mysteries of the kingdom of God, was never for the masses. Some of his deepest teaching is in the upper room in John. You know, or the Olivet Discourse where they go away in, in Matthew. 
Jesus gets into the deeper understanding with those who have ears to hear. And this is important because there's a, a contrast here. It's, it's a privilege for those who sit at his feet. And so it must get us to think about what we saw last week. Look at the detail here. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. Remember last week, verse 34 of chapter 3, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. This is insight for the family of God, the mothers and the brothers, those adopted into the family, those who sit at his feet. This is a privilege of those who are called to sit at his feet. And there's also a detail that comes in at the end of the chapter that we'll spend more time on later. But look at verse 33 of chapter 4. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. He did not speak to them, outsiders, without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Imagine that. Jesus is teaching these parables and telling these stories that no one's ever heard, and they're like, what is he talking about? Jesus brings you in and says, let me open this up for you. The beautiful thing is this is what he still does for us, is if you are in Christ, he sent his spirit so that we could understand these things, to give us new hearts and new minds and new ears and new eyes. When we open God's word, it becomes real to us. We get it. We understand it. To his disciples, those who sit at his feet, he explains everything. And but they asked him, as they sit down, and they ask an important question here. What about the parables? So they're essentially asking two questions. What about parables in general? Because Jesus told a whole bunch of them here. And why this parable? So we're going to answer the first question this week and the second question next week. The question this week is, why does Jesus speak in parables at all? Next week, well, what about this parable? So we'll, we'll get there more when we handle uh, verses 14 through 20. And this, this is how he answers. He says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Who is to you? Those sitting around him, the ones on the inside, the ones given ears to hear. Notice the contrast, but for those on the outside. For you, you who are mine, you have been given another gift of God. Ears that you, didn't, you weren't born with, understanding that you didn't have on your own, it has been given to you. This is kingdom insight bestowed. God's understanding given to His people. He who has ears, let him hear. Now John uses kind of the same language in, in his gospel. Like those who have ears to hear, John uses four times in his gospel those who have eternal life. This is a possession not if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. That is never how it's phrased. Those who have eternal life, if there's something they already possess, they will listen to me and they will follow my commandments. I want to look at John 3 and look how John the Baptist describes this. Because when everyone is asking him what he thinks and what should we do with this, with this Jesus guy, look how John the Baptist explains their understanding versus Jesus' understanding. And how he ties it all together. So this is John chapter 3, verse 31. John 3, 31. He who comes from above is above all. 
He who is above the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from above is above all. He bears witness to what, has, what he has seen and has heard. Notice the, the, the same context here. What Jesus has seen and heard, he tells his disciples to see and hear. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Here's where it all comes together. The Father, the Son, the people around him. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. The mark of having eternal life being in Christ is ears to hear. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So there is a contrast there. There is no middle ground. Those who have eternal life because they have ears to hear. Because there is eternal life given to them by the Father and those who the wrath of God remains on. And this is Jesus drawing the distinction between the inside and the outside here. And um, John, again, uses that more often in, in chapter 5 and a couple times in chapter 6. Oops, we'll get that later. Um, but yeah, so he says he's given to you, and what, what have you been given? The, the, the secret to the kingdom of God. So this, what is a, a, a secret? Same word, mysterion in Greek, the same word for, for mystery. Paul uses this often. Things that we can't understand without God revealing them to us. Things that we can't know without God giving us insight into them. And what is the secret? The secret to the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is the most often used topic in Jesus' parables. Most of his parables are about the kingdom of God, and even if he doesn't explicitly mention it, they are about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, God's economy, how things work in the, in, in the spiritual, the eternal, the redemptive. Using natural economy, so the, so the language of how things work in our lives, to explain how things work in God's economy. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But to those who, are, those who are perishing, those who don't have this secret, this is a hidden realm. Something they, they, they can't possibly understand. It is hidden to them, but it's only for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And that's why he says here, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Again, this is building off of last week. Jesus' family at the time were showing that they were on the outside. They stood at a distance outside of Jesus' inner circle, demanding that Jesus come to him on their terms. But here he's speaking about those who are truly outside, completely outside, who will never understand. At the time, Jesus' family didn't understand. And so parables are a way of saying the same words, yet getting two completely different responses. Jesus, by using the same words, gives comfort and insight to the sheep. and gives confusion and compounded blindness to the goats. The same words getting two responses from two different groups of people. And so, uh, I can't take credit for this. This is a really great illustration. But again, I'm going to use visuals for this because this is helpful. Parables are like stained glass. Um, I don't know if you've... These are not stained glass. I don't know what these are. Um, but if you've ever seen real stained glass, it is amazing. So I want to show you the uh, Chartres Cathedral. So it's French, and my French pronunciation is like one step above my, my Klingon, so uh, sorry. Uh, but anyways, this was built in, in 1260. You can pull the, the first one up. This is the height of French Gothic 
architecture. So amazing from the outside, right? Just beautiful and intricate. Take a look at that, that circle up there. Focus on that one. Look at the next picture. So this is it. This is what it looks like from the outside. I mean, that's amazing in itself. This is, a, this is a parable to those who do not have eyes to see. Look what happens when you go on the inside. That's what it looks like on the inside. The next one's a close-up. This is a beautiful view of what a, a, a parable is. And you can leave that up there for a second. Because to those on the outside, Jesus gives everything in parables. If you do not have eyes to see, you're seeing a building like, yeah, that's pretty cool, but there's no life. There's no, there, there, there's no vibrancy. There's no, there's no color. And Jesus gives you eyes to see. It is beautiful. It is amazing. It's this grand detail that he unfolds before his, his people. It is a divine, beautiful truth that is hidden in plain sight. Okay, thanks, Trey. But why? Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 12, so that. Anytime we see so that, it means it's purpose. Those on the outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand. Um, in the Greek, this is seeing that they may see and not know. So this, this perceiving is not just information. It's experiential knowledge. Something that they know and can participate in. I speak in parables so that they will see actually see, yet still remain ignorant. Hearing that they will hear and not understand. This understand is literally to put together. Here's the, the, the puzzle analogy again. They may hear it with their ears, but they cannot put it together. The puzzle still arranged, is arranged in a mess. So what Jesus is saying here is that their senses are working perfectly. Their eyes and their ears are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. He is speaking to them. They are hearing him. They are seeing him. But blind and deaf to the things of God. And perfectly content in it. Happy to be there. Where they want to be. That's why Jesus brings in Isaiah chapter 6. And if you have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 6, I want to pull up a couple of things. But while you turn there, I think this is important. When Jesus gives us purpose, why does he speak in parables? So that they won't know. So that they won't perceive, so that they won't understand. So, and many people think that Jesus speaks in parables so that it makes things clear to non-believers. It's actually quite the opposite. Jesus speaks in parables so that non-believers, those who have hardened hearts, those who, who hate him, will remain in their ignorance. And many people also try to use parables as justification for pastors telling more stories. Hey, just tell more stories. That's what, that's what people want to hear, right? Jesus told a lot of stories. Really? You mean the stories he just told us are so that they remain in their ignorance? And we tell more of those? Now, certainly, Jesus uses contemporary language and uses everyday analogies. So do we. But Jesus never told a story without a theological purpose. He never told you about his day with his, with his dog or, you know, driving on the highway five miles over the speed limit or all the other stupid stories I've heard pastors tell with no purpose in the sermon. Every time Jesus masterfully used a story, it was to convict. It was to convince. It was to, to draw a ruler next to a theological truth that he wanted to point you to. 
That is why we use illustrations. That is why we use analogies, not just to fill time and keep people's attention. Sadly, I think so many people think that we need to fill stories because God's word is not appealing enough. They think that, well, people are going to lose interest in God's word after five minutes to put another joke in, put another story in. Jesus was very intentional with every word he used. There was not one missed word that came out of his mouth. What should we do when we proclaim and explain the word of God? So, if you're in your Bibles and Isaiah chapter 6, remember we read this earlier, and I want to I, I bring to your attention a couple things. So first, you have to read Isaiah 6 in the context of where he is in Isaiah. Chapters 3 through 5 are condemnation against Jerusalem and Israel. They're going after other gods. God is the, the uh, vineyard planter who we read th- this, this morning. And he looked for justice and he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness and behold, outcry. This is a wicked people. Isaiah is convicted because I'm a man of unclean lips, again, among people of unclean lips. God gives Isaiah one of the most amazing visions anyone has ever seen. The throne room of God. The seraphim flying around and and the, the, the choruses of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, day and night, forever and ever. And he falls to his face. And then beautiful atonement language where his lips are touched and his guilt is taken away. The righteousness given to him so that he can be used by the Lord. And the Lord asks this question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Most faithful words any servant can say, here I am, send me. What is he being sent to? He's sent to an unfaithful people. And if you read the book of Isaiah, most of it is judgment. But there's so much gospel in there that is sprinkled throughout the book. What is he told to go and say to the people? Who will go to the people? I will. Want me to tell them some good news? No, tell them some bad news. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. Jesus quotes this passage intentionally. To a wicked, hard-hearted people. His own people. Understanding that you deserve condemnation. That this good news to those who have ears to hear is death to you. Because if you read through the rest of this as we did earlier, God's going to wipe everything out. He's going to wipe out 90% of it. Look at verse 13. And though a tenth remain, it will be burned again. Everyone who rejects him, everyone who continues in unrighteousness will be wiped out, except for the stump. What is the stump? The holy seed is the stump. Even in God's destruction of the wicked, there is still a promise of his good. The promise of the seed, the holy seed, the only offspring. Jesus, in his masterful way of explaining things, bring back an example from a time when the wicked would be deaf and blind, and their only hope was in the stump after everything else is burned. This is the context of which Jesus quotes. So I want to look at a couple examples of seeing and hearing. John is, is great for this, because again, John tells no parables, but John gives us the theological framework that surrounds these, these parables. So in Mark, when, when Jesus said, you know, seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear, what does John tell us about seeing? 
The, so this is John chapter 9. You can turn there or I'll, I'll read it quickly. But John chapter 9, when Jesus heals the blind man. And he says, you know, I can, I can see. I don't know who this guy is, but he made me see. And he says, you know, do you, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, uh, you know, where is he, sir, that I may believe? You have, you have seen him. So this interplay between the sight of, of the blind man and Jesus. And, of course, the Pharisees are not far behind. Look at verse 40 and some of the Pharisees, or verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to them, are we also blind? They are always the hero in the story, aren't they? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. We see, of course we see. We've got all knowledge and in full arrogance. Which shows how truly blind you are. And I came that you might not see. And that this man, who could not see, who has no hope on his own, whose family doesn't want anything to do with him, people walk by him every day, is no value in and of himself. I will give him eyes. But those who stand in their own righteousness, I will blind them even further. Look at John chapter 8. We talk about hearing. John chapter 8, verse 45, probably a page before in your Bibles. So what's the, the, the hearing problem? Of course, they understand Jesus' words. Look at John 8, 45. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Okay, why don't they see? Because in their own arrogance, they think they already see. Why don't they hear? Well, the context of John 8 is talking about Satan, who's the father of lies. They wouldn't know the truth if it stood right in front of them and looked them in the eye. That's what's going on here. It is because I tell you the truth, we're not speaking the same language. I am the God of truth. You are of the father of lies. Look what he says. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe? Remember, here's look at the, the possessive language again. Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Boom. That's a mic drop moment right there. Absolutely. They can't achieve it, can't be given to them because they're not of God. And that's what he came, that they would be deaf and blind to him. And then the hardest part to read this, they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Ouch! Wait, you mean Jesus doesn't desire that every person everywhere repents? Some are purposed not to repent. Some are purposed to remain in their, their hardness of heart. Jesus is doing some interpretation here because Isaiah says heal. Isaiah uh, uses the word for heal, which is also the same word for save. The same, Jesus is telling them when he means heal, he's not talking about physical healing. He's talking about spiritual healing. He uses this passage that is fulfilled in their hardness, in their promise to bring to light that they will not be forgiven. And so here's where I think, before we close this up, I think here's where I think Matthew is really helpful. So Matthew talks about 
the same instance but gives us some more detail. So after we've walked through Mark, look at the details in Matthew chapter 13. So in Matthew 13, look at 11 through 15. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the Notice Jesus plays both sides here. It's not just half given, others are on their own. We see God's sovereignty here. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. Those of ears to hear, they will receive the abundance of the kingdom of God. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, look at this detail, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. That says, and the language here he uses is, is stronger. Again, often Mark will condense Jesus' language. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Now here's where God's sovereignty and human responsibility play together. Because yes, God must give you ears to hear. He must work in you. He must give you the secrets of the kingdom. But you are complicit in your own hardness. Look at verse 15. For this people's heart has grown dull. They have done it to themselves, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed. They are willingly, actively Closing their ears, closing their eyes so they can't hear Jesus. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Their only healing, their only hope comes from him. But they willfully grip their teeth, close their eyes, plug up their ears. I don't want to hear this. This is a very difficult truth. And then this last verse here in 13. Where he says, do not understand this parable. How then will you understand all the parables? The point is not just the parable of the sower. The point is ears to hear. Without the Holy Spirit, they can't understand any of this. Understanding for one, understanding for them all are the same. It's either you can understand or you can't. This is why Jesus had to go to the cross. Because he had to to restore them to himself. This is why he had to go to the Father. So that he could send the Spirit so we could understand. The Spirit would renew our hearts, renew our minds, renew our ears, renew our eyes, so that we can get this. This frustration continues, even in chapter 8, and, and we'll get there. Jesus multiplies the bread to the 5,000, and, and then they're, they're hungry a few hours later, and like, where are we going to get bread? We forgot bread. He's like, didn't you just learn? I just multiplied loaves and fishes just a, just a few hours ago. And he tells them, do you, do you have eyes to see and still not perceive? Even walking with Jesus every day is nothing without the work of the Holy Spirit. But we have the Spirit of Christ. This is an encouragement to the church. That even though it's a difficult passage for them, if you are in Christ, this is beautiful. And so I want to end with this. If you are in Christ, to you has been given ears to hear. If you read God's Word with eyes to see and ears to hear, praise Him. He has opened up His Word that you would know Him. The secret of the kingdom of God is yours. You ever think about that? Everything about every time you open your Bible, we are reading the secret of the kingdom of God. Sit at his feet, learn, 
rest, rejoice. You have the key to the kingdom. Figuratively and literally, one day he will welcome you into the kingdom. That's why we spend so much time in Scripture, not just because it's some great book of history that we've done for so long, but because it gives us eyes to see the things of God. It is His words to us. It's, it's for your building up. Jesus, the Word, took on flesh so that, your, that His Word might take root in you, that His Spirit might teach you all things about Him. So read it, study it, devour it. Because He has made all things, even the wicked, for the day of disaster. You have been saved from God's wrath that remains on you apart from His gift of eternal life. Rejoice in His Word. And we will continue to be a body who spends time in the Word of God and, and wrestles with it until we are blessed by it. But if you were sitting here this morning and Jesus' words sound like Charlie Brown's teacher, you might be on the outside. It's a sobering thought. That the wrath of God remains on you. That as much as you want to see in your own strength and hear in your own strength, you can't. I don't know where you are, but I know the one who can make you new. Cry out to him. Turn to him and repent. He will give you ears to see and eyes to hear. Don't be on the outside of the, of the cathedral looking in. There is beauty and there is color. And there is vibrance in life in the word of God. Only He can give you ears to hear. Only He can give you eyes to see. You must be born again, and we want that for you so that you understand and rejoice the God who no longer speaks to you in parables, but speaks to you as a son in perfect clarity. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your wisdom. How you have prepared before time the circumstances of our lives, the response of our hearts and our minds, that we might turn from our sin and turn to you. Lord, we praise you for giving us the spirit of truth, the mind of Christ, that we might rightly know you that there, the veil no longer remains, and we see you clearly, and we look upon your face, how awesome you are. How amazing it is every time we read your word and it searches us. Lord, I pray for anyone here who remains in darkness, walking around with full use of their faculties, yet blind and deaf to the things of the kingdom of God that you will use your word, your truth, to call them to yourself, that they would repent and turn to you, they'd be given eyes to see, and they would, that they would rejoice with you for everlasting. Lord, we cannot begin to understand why you do what you do. We would not dare to put ourselves in your place and to try to determine who you have set for eternal life for all. But let us be those who sow seeds everywhere. We have an abundantly rich God. 
And the message of the word should be sown far and wide so that those ears may be opened and those eyes may be opened and that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.